welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe and I'm mad. <laughs> I managed to piss Joe off this morning and I'm Bretta. <laughs> and our show is located on the ancestral lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumseh-Sequatin territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sequatin-Ulu. And we have no territorial acknowledgement for today's episode because we're crossing the pond and spending some time in Berlin. Mm-hmm. And then in the film adaptation, we're spending some time in Walt Disney's Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> which was actually shot on location in berlin as well as many very obvious sets one of the weirdest things about it that i found in the film adaptation joe is that there's no consistency between like using american accents using mm-hmm. actual german actors and then no. the worst part the adult american actors all seem to put on these fake german accents mm-hmm. but then there's also real germans in the movie so it's like really weird anyway we'll get there yeah we'll get there <laughs> <laughs> so today we're reading and watching um, Emil and the Detectives by Eric Kastner. I really hope I'm pronouncing that right. I did listen to three different pronunciations and that's what mm-hmm. I came to. Okay. So you're putting on a fake German accent or you're an American just performing in this production? <laughs> I'm doing my best over here, Joe. <laughs> Um, so this book was written in 1929, which makes it one of the oldest texts we've read, Joe. Mm-hmm. And not like classic literature. Yeah, exactly. Well, it is classic it literature is, yeah. if you were a kid growing up in Germany. So this came to us as a listener suggestion from Alma. And Alma wrote that they're somebody who is studying German and English literature. Joe, this email gives us so much credit for teaching them to read critically. And it just <laughs> made me like so happy. <laughs> it made me just very... Anyway, it's a very sweet email, Alma. Thank you. Mm-hmm. But Alma points us in the direction of Eric Kastner and says, it's more children's lit, but it's very famous and popular in Germany to this day. And that definitely seems to be the case because like every time I posted about reading this on social media or watching it, I had people replying like, oh, yeah, like this is the most important book in German children's literature. Like, and I'm like, okay, I'd never heard of it. So thank you, Alma, for pointing us in this direction. It's absolutely wild. Yeah. And Alma also clarifies that the books have been adapted multiple times. So this particular text has, uh, I think, two or even three film adaptations. We chose the Disney one because it was the most accessible, uh, because obviously it's on Disney Plus. But apparently there's also other books called Punkten und Anton, as well as Das Doppellotchen, which one of the adaptations is The Parent Trap. Yeah, I would love to revisit that one, Joe. That would be really, really fun sometime. Right? Yeah, because that one also has multiple adaptations, of which I have seen none. What's really interesting about this book, I think, historically, is that, you know, it was written in 1929, so pre-World War II. Mm-hmm. This is the only one of Kastner's books written before 1945 that managed to escape Nazi censorship. So. Ooh. Yeah, so very interesting. You know, it's hugely popular. Like in 1929, the original version sold 2 million copies. Joe. Holy mother. <laughs> yeah, it's never been out of print and it's been published in 59 languages. Just like that is wild. And then again, here you and I over across the pond. Derp, 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 derp. <laughs> 
<laughs> this is why the listener's suggestions are so important. It's true. We would have had no way of knowing what we didn't know without having this suggestion. <laughs> so it's great. Um, so the story itself is really, it's pretty straightforward. Like it's twisty, yeah. but it's ultimately a pretty straightforward plot. Our protagonist is 12-year-old Emil, and um, his father is has died. His mother is raising him alone. She's hardworking. She, Ooh. Yeah, really hardworking. <laughs> She's a hairdresser. This woman doesn't rest. No, she never, never rests. And so, you know, wanting him to spend some time with family and to have some fun and to get out of their small town, she sends Emil to Berlin to stay with his aunt and grandmother, and... She puts some money in an envelope mm -hmm. that she pins into his jacket. And the subtext going on is that usually Emil's mom, in addition to supporting Emil, sends money back to the grandmother right. in Berlin. Mm -hmm. But she hasn't been able to for the last couple of months. So this time she's sending 140 marks, which yeah. is a lot of money. Lot I don't know money. how much it is, but it's a lot. <laughs> So on the train to Berlin, Emil uh, sees this man in a bowler hat and he's polite. He gives him, you know, he gives Emil some chocolates. It's like just a nice man on a train. Um, when he wakes up, no money, mm -hmm. no man in the bowler hat. Hmm. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. So Emil gets off the train right away, finds the man in the bowler hat, follows him. But he's too scared to call the police, Joe, because... Mm -hmm. Because he's publicly defaced us. A statue, yes. but like in a very humorous way. Yeah, I think it's he put best. lipstick on. It. He painted the nose red. It's so cute. Yeah. <laughs> so he feels that he is too much of a criminal to involve law enforcement in this scenario. So hysterical. Yeah. He ends up meeting up with a local boy named Gustav who has a gang of friends. They all call themselves the detectives and mm -hmm. they decide they're going to like tail the man in the bowler hat. They're going to spy on him. Mm -hmm. They find out what hotel he's staying with. They yep. end up following him to a bank where he tries to exchange Emil's money for smaller bills. Mm -hmm. And then Emil's like, that man stole that money. And then they're like, <laughs> can you prove it? And he's like, no, wait, yes, I can. It was pinned to my jacket. There'll be a pinhole in the money. And then the mm -hmm. bank teller is like, I'm looking at the money. And yes, there is a pinhole in the money. And anyway, it turns out. <laughs> it's honestly like it, the story is so simple, but it's such a fast paced it is. story, right? I mean, I'm laughing because you're so into it and I love it. <laughs> but that's also what the experience of reading it's, this it's book is like. like. It's so propulsive. And you're just like, yes, get that. <laughs> money yes bank teller yes and anyway it turns out that the man in the bowler hat is actually like a big criminal who mm -hmm. they've been trying to catch for a while he's in a gang of bank robbers it turns out and so emil gets a big chunk of money and he decides to give um some of the money to his mother to buy a new hair drying station i guess mm -hmm. and then they talk at the end about the moral of the story and his right. grandmother's like the moral of the story is don't use cash, send money orders. And I'm mm -hmm. like, this is amazing. <laughs> oh, it's so hilarious. Like, <laughs> there's so many just fun little quirky characters in this. Like, the boys gang, like, there's many of them, but a couple of them stand out. You know, there's Gustav, who is the, the de facto leader, and he and Emil have this kind of combative relationship because they they made fun of each other's clothes, but they have a begrudging respect for each other. There's the professor who is super smart. There's the young kid who ends up manning the telephone and is really important in like connecting everybody because of course these are preteen boys and they have to go home and check in with their parents. <laughs> 
<laughs> they're just so sweet. Like one of the mm-hmm. things I really appreciated about this book is that they all act like little boys. Yes. Like they're little boys pretending to be grown-ups, but oh, they're mm-hmm. very much little boys pretending. And mm-hmm. there's something extremely charming about the voice. Um, there is like an omniscient third person narrator. Like it's not told from any one boy's perspective, but mm-hmm. But that never feels like an adult sort of making fun of or teasing what's happening. Like the narration takes the boy's actions very seriously. And I just, there's the tone of this book. It took me a while. I was saying to Joe before recording this week that it was taking me a while to get into the book. Like I found it quite stilted. And I I realized, you know, that has a lot to do with reading books in translation. It's a different Mm -hmm. experience. Yeah. But once I settled into it, I so enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. because of that fast paced and because of that way that it takes the silly silly actions of these children so so seriously it's great yeah i think one of the other things that ends up making this story really hum is that it understands its audience right like this is very much a book for excitable young boys so it's written in a style that captures that mood and that tone like there's something so celebratory about the way the boys come together like i kept waiting for terrible things to happen like I was waiting for these boys to be combative with Emil, and they're not. No. Like they, they immediately believe what he's saying, and they decide to join him on this quest. And then at the end, everyone is so excited about this quest, this mission. Like they all want to be involved. So the climax is yes, the bank teller being on their side, but there's also like hundreds of boys yeah. who circle the criminal <laughs> and make sure that he can't get away until they can verify that yes. Indeed, he is a crook. It's amazing. It's such a straightforward, like, good versus evil kind of story, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I kept waiting for it to be like, oh, he's actually not the man who stole your money. <laughs> like, you've accidentally fingered him. And no, no. It's like, yeah, this was always the guy. Not only is he the guy, but he's not simply a petty thief. He's also mm-hmm. done all these or- other horrible things, right? Right. It's so unproblematically, like, <laughs> just bad guys getting their comeuppance. And uh, it's it's really quite delightful. Hmm. So interestingly enough, there's also a sequel yeah. from 1934 called Emile and the Three Twins. But it's interesting that this one seems to be a bit more political mm-hmm. and as a result does not catch on quite as much. I think what is ultimately attractive about Emile and the Detectives from like a historical contextual perspective is that it's it's written in 29, but it seems to take place, you know, in the same time as Kastner's childhood. So it's mm-hmm. taking place pre-World War One. Right. So there's kind of like a... That's a simpler time. Much simpler time sort of vibes. And I guess in Emile and the Three Twins, it's about two years closer to World War One's outbreak. And it's based on Kastner's own experience of being on holiday and having to cut holiday short because the war is starting and so Mm -hmm. yeah i think it just gets a little bit too close to real life for the nazis who had actually forbidden the publication of every single kastner book except for emil and the detectives and i think the only reason emil and detectives seems to have survived is because it was already like it was too big a hit right yeah be like trying to ban goldilocks and the three bears like right you can't we all know the story right (laughs) yeah yeah um 
I don't know that I have too, too much more to say about the book. Although I am interested because you and I were talking about next week's book, Off Mic, mm -hmm. uh, which is another boy-centric tale. Yeah. How did you feel about the sort of overwhelming boyness of this? Yeah, it's so funny. We haven't even talked about Emile's cousin, who mm -hmm. um, she, a pony, I think her name is. Yes. She helps to kind of smooth things out at home while all the action is happening right and she's very bossy she's very she mm -hmm. puts herself in to situations she bosses nana around she's like a little bit controlling and i think yeah. that that's a real sort of release it's big sister vibes right strong big sister vibes and her importance to the narrative really helps i actually think it's a it's a problem, more of a problem in the film um, yes. because she's such a lesser character in the film. <laughs> and kind of unlikable. Totally unlikable. Whereas in the book, she very much wants to be part of the action, but she also yeah. does feel like she has some responsibility to sort of be the grown up. Mm -hmm. um, so for some reason, that balance works for me in the book. Yeah. I think, too, you know, one of the things that we've been talking about off mic as we prep for the next episode is there was sort of like this the nihilism of the teen boy of the 2000s like mm -hmm. it turns out i continue to find that insufferable even when i'm not a teen girl in the 2000s <laughs> and we're like 20 years removed <laughs> whereas there's nothing nihilistic about mm -mm. Emil and his pals right they're no. on this amazing adventure and uh yeah i i think for me between the time period the character of pony and just the general fun of the text it didn't mm -hmm. feel like it didn't feel like a testosterone affair at all. Right. Yeah. No, I, I feel the same way. And maybe we can transition over to the film and talk about why that vibe fun. is a little bit different. Yeah. All right. So as we mentioned, uh, there's a couple of different film adaptations. The one that we are talking about is the 1964 Disney American adaptation directed by Peter Tewksbury. And... As we mentioned, this was filmed in Berlin, shot in part on Tempelhof Studios, as well as around the city. So we have Brian Russell as Emil. We have Walter Slezak as the Baron. The film makes an unusual choice of actually showing us additional villains because uh, <laughs> this is kind of fun, right, Brenna? We always joke that contemporary YA adaptations don't understand their text, so they don't trust the audience <laughs> to be engaged, so they have to blow up the climax, make it bigger, make it broader. Guess Here what? we are in 1964. <laughs> it's like, oh, a petty criminal's not enough. We've got to do a giant bank heist and really put these kids in danger. Frag a dig. So we have Walter Slezak as the Baron, who is the kind of mafia-esque boss. Like, he's a portly gentleman. He enjoys his caviar and his wine. And he's bossing around his subordinate, Mueller, who is played by Peter Elrich. And then the actual thief, who is... He's very comical in this. Like, he's basically a mole because he digs tunnels, but he's also a petty thief who steals from Emil on the bus, not the train this time. But he is played by Heinz Schubert. And then we have uh, Roger Mobley as Gustav, Cindy Castle as Pony, and Elsa Wagner as Grandma. Joe. Mm hmm. This film disappointed me. Okay. Tell me why. Okay, so first of all, it opened really strong. I love right. that, like, 1960s opening animation. Mm -hmm. I love that, like, heist movie vibes that it opens with. 
I will admit I was taken aback by the voiceover narration that makes it sound (laughs) like this is a very serious crime drama. Yes. And I think this is where I got a little bummed out is that the um, I thought that it was being funny. Like I thought that it was like we're framing this up like a heist movie, but we're going to undercut it by the fact that it's such a silly plot. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that then then it then it is a heist movie. Well, it is a heist movie, but we're still undercutting it, but only in certain instances. Like, there's distinctive musical cues, particularly (laughs) around uh, Grundis, the mole, the thief, the pickpocket. He's such a caricature that whenever he does stuff, we get the kind of comedic, like, wow. Yeah. You referred to it as as doing a lot of the heavy lifting, like the telling you what to feel in every moment sort of Oh my thing. gosh, this orchestra is <laughs> overpowering. It kind of dials it back in the middle of the film, but particularly at the beginning and then in the climax, I I felt like I was being shouted at by this score. <laughs> There's also some just inexplicable continuity choices that are made. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm I'm very glad that if they were going to cast American kids, they didn't try to make them do German accents because oh, that would have been awful. Yeah. I was, I'm fine with that. It does not bother me. Mm-hmm. With the adult cast, they have a mix of Americans mm-hmm. with American accents, Germans with German accents, and Americans with bad post-war yeah. mocking German accents. And mm-hmm. the combination is deeply grating. There's also the interesting choice of not having all the children pronounce Emil's name the same way, even though the movie opens with a pronunciation guide. Like, literally, if you haven't watched this movie, you guys, I've never seen anything like it. It opens, and it's like Emil and the detectives, and then it's like, pronounced A, A Mill. And then there's an image of a mill. (laughs) It's very like, it's very like, you get it right. And then the movie proceeds the first character is like, Emil. It was wild. It was so. It's like if you don't care, why did I have to sit through that title card? Hmm. It's definitely baffling in certain areas. Like, I kind of understand that the story from the book is so simple that they felt the need to goose it up. But you're right. Like, this is a full blown crime heist film where we are threatening to drown children yes. or blow them up with dynamite at one point emil is trapped in a tunnel with the criminals and the choice is either explode one end of the tunnel to release him or wait for him to be drowned and mm-hmm. it's like okay um okay <laughs> it's yeah. just a lot but meanwhile we're still doing like ha ha stuff where we drive the criminal's car into a tree so that they can't get away and then you know we've got the oblivious traffic control officer start to write them up a ticket like i can understand what we're trying to do because in some ways this very much feels like a film for children like mm-hmm. this is a disney film of the 60s in the vein of bed knobs and broomsticks and yes. so on but the balance just feels off very off I also was frustrated, I think, a little bit by the way in which Emil as a character gets really, um, he's really subsumed in the mm. film version. Like oh, Gustav yeah. is the leader. Oh, and, and he's the leader of the film? Yes. And he becomes like, like Emil becomes like just their client. Yes. In the book, Emil needs the other kids. Like it's mm-hmm. it's like a, it's a definitely a gang affair. Um, sure. But it's a much more even handed one. Sometimes mm-hmm. Emil comes up with the solution. Sometimes the professor comes up with the solution. This has a vibe of like 
I don't know if Roger Mobley was like a child star at this point or Mm -hmm. what, but it definitely feels like this is a vehicle for that young actor. Sure. And everything else has to be sort of central to keeping him in focus all the time. Mm -hmm. And I I think if I hadn't read the book, you know, if we have this conversation all the time, would you care if you hadn't read the book? Probably not, because Emil is a very nothing character in the film. Yeah. But he's really, I really like him in the book. I wanted more of that. <laughs> yeah, he's so kind of cute and determined. Like, he, he's got a lot of personality in the book. And you're right, he's actually quite bland in the film. Yeah. And it does feel like the movie is just so much more interested in Gustav. Like, this is the character with personality. He's introduced and he's got this hilarious child sales pitch about being the best guide in berlin he'll show you all of the hot spots that you won't find in the tourism magazines and that kind of stuff this child actor is fantastic mm-hmm. but it also makes a meal not interesting <laughs> at as all a result and and the same is true of the other characters right so like the professor goes from being sort of the voice of reason to kind of irritating yeah, he just talks too much. And Pony, because she ends up being positioned a little bit in opposition to Gustav and a little bit as like a potential like flirtatious love interest, mm-hmm. we end up also losing any sort of character or tone for her as well. It's it's just, yeah. I get what they're doing, but it flattens the other children. And in a story that's all about like kids coming together to mm-hmm. fight adults, that's a disappointment. Yeah, it very much feels like we're taking a group narrative from the book and distilling it down to here's this quirky child who happens to take a case and that's gustav Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i found one of the other challenges is that even though they're really expanding the scope and the stakes of the story with this kind of heist and like all of a sudden we've got these three what do they call them shrinkies uh yeah i didn't know what that word was (laughs) no i couldn't tell if it was a like a german colloquialism or if it was a 60s colloquialism but i was like i have never heard this word before tell me more Mm -hmm. but yeah like we're we're really going big with this and the runtime's not hugely long like it's about an hour and 45 minutes but i found that the film wasn't able to keep my attention as an adult and yeah so Mm, can I tell you about can I tell you about that a little bit? So mm-hmm, you watched mm-hmm. it like this morning, right? Right. Yes. So I was watching it last night and um uh my kiddo is star of the week at school, as I was telling you. And so I was making the cookies for mm-hmm. him to take into his class. And so because the film is so like score focused, right, and because there are stretches that are I found pretty 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 boring. Yeah, um a little bit. I, a little bit bland. <laughs> I realized, like, because I was making sugar cookies and, you know, rolling them in the sugar and then putting that, like, there were whole stretches where I realized that the only reason I knew what was happening in the movie was because the orchestra the was telling me what was happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, I think, becomes particularly problematic in that last act before yes. the drama really kicks in where, ooh, are we going to maybe kill this child or one of the criminals? There's a whole drawn-out section where they kind of lose uh, Grundis. That's the mole character because he's been digging this tunnel. And we just kind of hang out in these ruins, which are very obviously a set. Mm -hmm. And it's not uninteresting, but it just feels like we should be ramping up. And instead, we're taking this very dramatic, lengthy pause 
And I just kept thinking to myself, I wonder if I would like this movie if we shaved about 10 minutes off of it. Yeah, from that exact section, I agree 100%. I will say I felt that way a little bit earlier because we we take Emil to the hideout or the the office of the detectives, which is very clearly one of the children's houses because his older sister is there hanging out on the phone just talking to a boy that we never meet. But um, initially, I just thought, well, why are we spending all this time with this girl? Is this going to become important? Is it just a bit of a gag, which it's proven to be the latter? And I was annoyed initially, but then there is this moment where they lock her out of the house and she just spends the rest of the film banging on the window. <laughs> yes. And at one point, um, they they call in a tip and they decide, okay, we all have to leave. And the phone rings again and it's the boy that the sister was talking to. So the boy like cracks open the window, passes her the phone, and then closes the window again. And... <laughs> I don't know why, but it just really tickled me. I thought it was such a funny moment. But again, I was kind of like, okay, I I guess I enjoyed the payoff, but why did this need to be in here? Yeah, I wanted more from that character because I liked her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and I think that you know, it's one of those things, right? It's such a it's such a boy centered film. It's so mm-hmm. interested in the boys' adventures, and it's made in a time period where there was no space for both. Right? There was no right. space for a film that centers young men and young women. Mm-mm. Um, do you want to hear something interesting about Roger Mobley? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So uh, Walt Disney apparently left one final memo before he went into hospital in 1966 when he died. Mm-hmm. And there are like three or four names written on this memo um, with like really kind of like confusing shorthand. And it okay. was Disney was like thinking through his, the next productions for for Walt Disney, right? Right. Anyway, Roger Mobley's name is one of the names on that final memo. Whoa. Yeah, and apparently, like he had, it had written CIA next to it. There was going to be some like <laughs> movie with Roger Mobley and the CIA. And unfortunately, well, first Walt Disney died, and then mm-hmm. Roger Mobley got called up to Vietnam, and Ooh. he survived. Okay. Uh, he was Green Beret. He survived, but he came back, and his acting career was over. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and he became a police officer eventually. But um oh, interesting. It's interesting to wonder, like we could never know, but I wonder what Walt Disney had planned for Roger Mobley if mm-hmm. life had gone differently. Yeah, if anybody knows, I mean, let us know. Yeah, totally want to know. Be very curious. <laughs> Brenna, shall we play some YA bingo with this text? I think we should try. Okay. Bingo. Not a good bingo. All right. So I am going to say musicality for the oh, film boy. <laughs> because we really outsource the emotional beats of this film to oh, sure. <laughs> to the orchestra. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely a both a road trip and a borrowed time narrative, right? Like mm-hmm. either he's going to get caught by his grandmother or he's going to get the money back, but one of them has to happen. Sure, it, yeah. within a, a pretty tight timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've got some good friendships with the boys, yeah. particularly in the book, right? I love the way at the end they're so close. It's really interesting how the film tries to give Gustav this like dark backstory. We haven't even <laughs> talked about that, but it's no. like there's all these moments where it's like Gustav is secretly poor and his dad doesn't love him. Anyway, back mm-hmm. to the adventure. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> it's it's kind of the crux of his burgeoning romance with Pony, but it also then doesn't pay off, strangely enough. No, at all very odd <laughs> it's just like we're, we're maybe gonna do this and if we ever make another adaptation of the second book maybe we'll pay it off but no we don't no 
Gosh, is that it? Is that it? The book feels very much, you can't really say it's a montage in the book, but the ways in which they move from like, you know, spot to spot as they're chasing the man in the bowler hat, I really mm-hmm. expected that to have a more montage vibe in the film. I was kind of surprised mm-hmm. when it didn't. Yeah, I mean, we, we've not really talked about the technical aspects apart from some of the acting and the sets, but this... I don't even really know how to describe Tewksbury's direction. Like, it's perfunctory, like it's doing what it needs to do, but it's not particularly memorable. No. If you have seen a Disney live action from the 60s, mm-hmm. you have you've seen, seen, this you've one. seen this movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I will applaud the fact that, like, they took a very distinctively German text and they made efforts to set it in in Berlin. Like, yeah. nowadays, we never would have done this. We would have said, yes, we're in Berlin, and people would talk like this. And then <laughs> it would be... I mean, there is some of that. <laughs> yeah, but it would have been filmed on, like, a California studio. Totally. Yeah, and I, it's interesting. Well, I mean, you've already said, you know, we have there's some questionable sets. But it's interesting to take the expense of being, like, in Berlin mm-hmm. and then shoot on obvious sound stages. But I guess that's the time. That and I can't help but wonder if like the the main one that they're using is the one where the entire climax is set like that last act is the most kind of egregiously obvious set. And I'm yeah. not saying that this is a negative like we do this a lot in movies. We film a lot of movies on set. Yes. It's more I think they needed to be able to control that uh, for a longer period of time. Whereas, you know, the moments where we're seeing like famous historical landmarks and intersections and that kind of stuff, like they're brief, but they do really help to set and ground the film. I found like this felt a bit like I was taking a vacation to Berlin. Yeah, I was actually pleasantly surprised by the amount of kind of localization, I guess, Mm -hmm. in the story. Yeah. So, unfortunately, not anywhere near a line. (laughs) (laughs) No, no lines at all. Um, Oh, I guess we technically have a dead family. Mm, mm -hmm. Neil's dad, but it still doesn't get us a line, so. No. Meh. (laughs) Um, It's not to say I didn't enjoy it, because I genuinely did. And I always Mm -hmm. think I'm not going to connect with older texts and then i do so that's always nice yeah yeah like this definitely feels a little bit rocky the book i mean early on if only because there's something just a slight bit i don't want to say unnatural because that's not right but it takes you a moment to adjust because it's like your brain acknowledges oh this is a translation like there's just something a little bit distinct about a translated text but once i got into this i mean it's it's a middle grade book, so yeah. it's pretty straightforward, but I powered through this. Like, I think I read it in an hour and a half or something. Yeah, and in a really enjoyable hour and a half. Like, mm-hmm. I really recommend it. And especially, like, I will say one reason why I was a little bit disappointed by the film is that, you know, listeners will know I have a kid who doesn't love peril. Right. And the book version, like, I can totally read this book to him no problem mm-hmm. but the, that film would have been no. too much oh no yeah it's too much <laughs> <laughs> when the kid is like i might drown i was like oh wow we really oh, oh, okay, okay. Oh, <laughs> all right 
Okay, Joe, so we are leaving the world of Berlin, and we're heading into a very different kind of text with Apple by Eric Gansworth. This is our book club pick. Unfortunately, responses are already in for book club, but I hope that you've had a chance to pick up this one because I really enjoy this memoir in verse form. It's, it's mm-hmm. good fun. Our next full-length text, we've kind of alluded to it a little bit here, is Thumbsucker by Walter Kern. I think this one's going to be a fun conversation, Joe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot going on in this very boy-centric, uh, I, I think I called it a Garden State-esque kind of book <laughs> to you off mic, Brenna. But um, yeah, this was another listener recommendation. I'll apologize in advance because it was over Instagram and I can't search it very easily. But uh, this should be in, an interesting one. Yeah, I'm excited. It's interesting that we've had such a collection of boy-centered stories from Emil to Book Club to Thumbsucker, even the mm-hmm. upcoming minisode. It's all it's all very masculine. Uh, so I think there'll be some good comparisons to draw as we as we move across the next few weeks. Mm-hmm. So, Breda, if people want to uh, get us an early mailbag response to Thumbsucker before Ooh, next yeah. week, uh, how would they get in touch? So email is always best for mailbag. That's hkhspod at gmail.com. But if you just want to touch base about, you know, what's your favorite Emil memory for our German listeners? I'm particularly (laughs) curious. Uh, You can find us on the Twitters at hkhspod or on the hashtag hkhspod. Joe, where do they find you? I can be reached at B still my remote and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray and that is Gray with an A. Joe, mm-hmm. I do think people should read this book and watch this movie. It was fun. Uh, I would say definitely read the book. And then if you're curious, the film is there, but it doesn't feel essential <laughs> to me. There are a lot of adaptations, though. In fact, I like I remember the name Billy Wilder from the one film studies class mm-hmm. I took. Billy Wilder wrote an adaptation of this in 35. He Wild. did. Yeah. So I, I'm sort of fascinated by how this this whole like cultural construct really skipped us by. So right. A good reminder that, you know, you've got all our contact information. If there's some major cultural touchpoint from your childhood that we've never mentioned, eh, let us know. Yeah, for sure. All right. So until next time, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Okay. So I'll stop talking while I click things. It will surprise you to know I don't have the card up. I'm shocked. (laughs) Okay, I have it now. I have it now. Okay, okay. There's something that's just a little bit different from uh, a conventional first-time English language. Nope.